everybody welcome our guest for today, Kelsey. Hi, Kelsey. How are hey, you? Hey, how you doing? Great, great. We're so excited to have you here. Hi, everyone. My name is Rand. I'm going to be your co-host for today with Remy. So we started this podcast slash series because we are a bunch of tech junkies and we've been in Web3 buying NFTs, buying digital assets, investing. But we realized we don't know what's going on in Web3 and pretty much nobody knows what's going on in Web3. And it's just it became a buzzword that is used everywhere. And we wanted to essentially build this mind map of what Web3 actually is and what it looks like. And so we wanted to have realistic conversations about what is Web3, how can we build successful products on Web3, and how can we merge Web2 products with Web3 products rather than just completely alienate everything that has been built on quote-unquote Web2. So Remy, um, do you want to do a quick intro? My name is Remy. I enjoy having great <laughs> conversations. Um, these conversations will just happen to be about Web3. Um, still cool people, still great conversations. Uh, I will say I'm very excited to talk with you, Kelsey, because I've been reading. So I've been going through your tweets, obviously. This is what you do with show prep. Um, and I like how, especially when you mentioned like self self-proclaimed skeptic when you quoted a Jack's tweet a while back, I, I enjoy having conversations with people who aren't super bullish, but also aren't ignoring the space. So excited for the conversation. Um, <laughs> Kelsey, was there anything you wanted to say about yourself? Because um, before we get started, because the only thing that I was going to say was I know a while back you you had a tweet about how you worked on essentially some of the things that Web3 is being built on and that you should essentially be grandfathered in. So I wonder if you wanted to talk a little about that as we uh, learn a little bit about you before we get in, into the conversation. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people, you know, this idea of classifying people as outdated or, um, you know, in some old tribe versus a new tribe. And look, you can do that if you want to, but it's disingenuous when you really think about actually how people work. And so it's a bit unnecessary. And also, I think it's a bit, a little bit misguided when you want to build a community. And so I think for me, I've been a part of lots of transitions before they had names. You know, before we called it DevOps, we were working on configuration and automation tools. Uh, before we had the Go conference, we were contributing to the Go programming language, which uh, parts of Ethereum was written in. Uh, before I even heard anyone ever refer to this stuff as Web2, even when we were calling things Web2.0, I never thought about it as a movement like some people uh, think about Web3. Now, I will also acknowledge the value of giving things names. There's value, even if we don't like those names. For example, uh, when serverless came out, as someone who was pushing the bar of a system called Kubernetes, which was bringing a new way of thinking about decoupling applications from servers, there was another camp of people who were like, all of that is a waste of time because you can just do everything via serverless. And I'm like, what a stupid name, especially when people know that there are actual servers underneath. And for a person like me who works at a cloud provider who also has a serverless offering, 
and I have a small bit of contributions to our serverless offering, I think the way people were positioning serverless as a magic formula to how computers work, it was kind of hard to unsee that in a community of people who are very excited about actually making the servers disappear. But the value was to listen to them. People in the serverless community were signaling to lots of people that, listen, there is no reason that every application in the world should be built the way we built them 15 years ago. It just doesn't make sense. And the truth is, they were right. I even did a whole keynote at a Kubernetes conference of what we could learn from the serverless community. And I talked about going from Kubernetes, this thing I had spent all of this time on. I contributed code. I even co-authored a book on the subject and given numerous of keynotes. And here I was on the stage saying, folks, Kubernetes is not a good fit for everything. Let me show you Lambda from Amazon. Look at the use case. Look at the workflow. Why shouldn't people in our community deserve something else? So that's a little bit of my background. So even though you see me being a skeptic, I am also a realist and I understand the difference between reality and fantasy. Absolutely love that. And this is actually one of the reasons why we wanted to have you as our first guest, because we wanted to have a very much realistic conversation about centralization, decentralization, what are the benefits and also what are the cons of Web3 or a decentralized technology? Um, and so one of our first questions that we have for you is, how do you define Web3 and what is your perception and relationship with Web3? Believe it or not, I work at a cloud provider, so you can imagine we have lots of customers. And so we service those customers by giving them infrastructure and sometimes managed services like machine learning APIs so they don't have to build their own language algorithms from scratch, right? There's lots of things people use in the cloud. Some of those customers are actually people who provide and host blockchain services. And out of those customers, there are also new customers who want to get into this for the first time. And so as a strategist, as a technologist, my job partially is to break down how different technologies can actually be leveraged in the overall solution. So when I think about Web3, name aside, if we put the name to the side for a moment and we think about a real business, you gotta build a real business. Real businesses have real customers today, not tomorrow, today. And so those customers have a front door. What is the front door to your customer base? In product, we think about total addressable market. Your total addressable market today has mobile phones, iOS or Android, and there's some others. And then we have web browsers. That is the majority of your customer base. Web3 is a architecture style to ideally build products and services, and my guess is that you are trying to go out to the biggest addressable market you can. So that means even though new technologies exist today that are coming out, they tend to have to integrate with what your customer base is using. That's where the hard part comes in, is the integration work. So let me give you an example. I have a customer, I won't mention their name, but they're like, Kelsey, we really need to use the blockchain for something. I'm like, why do you need to use the blockchain. It's like, because everybody's talking about the blockchain and I really, really need a use case. And look, my LinkedIn profile is getting a little stale. 
And boy, if I can just add this Web3 on there, you know, all the recruiters are going to be hitting me up. So I'm trying to get that blockchain in the mix. I said, okay, no problem. So one valid use case would be this idea of just the most common one. Like I want to add microtransactions to our service. It's like, hey, that's no problem. I remember back in the day when I integrated PayPal and Authorize.net, which was a you know service provider that let me take credit cards. Like, look, okay, so which blockchain would you like to take payments from? If I go to CoinMarketCap, I think there's like 9,000 tokens. Which one do you want? They're like, Kelsey, what do you mean 9,000? I was like, dude, yeah. Which cryptocurrency do you actually want to accept? They're like, I just want to accept the Web3 one. I'm like, uh-oh. Cool. Someone doesn't understand <laughs> what we're doing here. What is the Web3 one, I asked. And it's like, it's, it's, it's the one where you buy the NFTs with. I said, okay, no problem. I'm also here to educate. So let's start with Ethereum. No problem. You can accept Ethereum. It's really nice. They got APIs. They got language frameworks. I've even shared Nader. I see him on the call. I even clicked and shared his video and say, you should watch this because I think he does a great job of explaining what it's like to build real world applications, right? That's, that's helpful. And then they say, Kelsey, we are now accepting cryptocurrencies. I'm like, hey, did you look at the login? Like people can use their wallets for login and maybe even use their NFTs for profile pictures. Like, wow, Kelsey, I thought you hate Web3. Why are you suggesting all of these valid things to do? I'm saying, listen, we're talking about your customers. If you have a subset of your customers that want to use their NFT as their profile pic, you can actually make that work. Here's how you do it. And so with that said, they will say, wow, Kelsey, okay. So where's all the skepticism from Web3 come from? I was like, oh, I'm not here to be a skeptic. I'm here to solve problems. You still need a front-end website, am I correct? They're like, yes. Um, ideally, your customer still needs a domain name in order to find your web property. Is that correct? They're like, uh, that's right. My guess is you still will do workflows, like you know, a customer goes to buy something or do some activity. Well, in order for you to give them what they're paying for, you have logic that cannot be easily expressed in a smart contract. Am I also right? Uh, yeah, Kelsey, you're, you're, you're onto something here. What about all that other data that you have that just wouldn't fit all on a blockchain, nor do you own all of that data? you need to interface with, so you will still need to integrate with the real world. So for me, my relationship has been as a technologist. I must understand all the tools available in which to build something. Once I understand them, I think the biggest struggle I've had and customers have is when people hear about Web3 for the first time, naively, the name tends to suggest that there's a whole new end-to-end development framework that replaces everything that came before it. I think everyone would agree that's actually not possible. And so for me, like part of the skepticism, part of me asking those questions, I know a lot of people think I'm just trolling. I'm legitimately answering questions. And when you give me answers, I turn those answers into knowledge. I actually try these things out. And I'm more informed when I'm giving people advice about how to adopt Web3. So for me, at the sum of everything, Web3 is a set of components to build applications in a certain style, but the reality still exists that you do not delete everything that came before. In fact, you build on top of. And I will say, I do greatly appreciate that even 
through skepticism that you're asking questions of like I don't un like I want to learn this or when you asked um are I might be wrong but there may are there any projects on web3 that aren't associated with coins like questions like that where you're just like this is a question that I have and I generally want to know the answer because I want to still stay informed yeah and and honestly and and so when the times you do see me get a little agitated if you will when people try to reduce humans to a smart contract that's that's when i tend to have a little bit more non-technical opinions i am really in touch with my human side i actually care about people in a way that most would consider cheesy or cliche when you say hey this struggle that a particular population has you can solve it on the blockchain that is very naive and disrespectful. You have to understand that humans are way more complex than you can express in a program, a legal contract, and this is why life is mostly a practice. Now, we can try to build systems to enforce our rules. There is no problem with that. But what we got to do is be really clear that no single technology can solve all human problems. The best we can do is try to practice and exercise systems that can be used as a course of life, but not a replacement of. So would you agree with the statement that decentralization is a net positive when used in certain contexts of like facilitating the things that decentralization is best at? I love that question because one thing I, I try to educate people on is Web3 did not invent decentralization. You're like, Kelsey, that's a silly thing to remind people in the Web3 community of. Of course they know that. But remember, I'm not talking to the people who are well-informed and educated in the Web3 community. I'm talking to everybody, even us old Web1 and old Web2 people. People don't understand that because we didn't walk around saying decentralization, even in the Web1 world, where it was decentralized as a core and also as a fault. Decentralization is a layer that has always been present in the internet. It was part of the original design. When you have an open system, you invite people to build whatever they want to build. That's just how it works. So the early systems, anyone could host their own website. There's always going to be a need for coordination. That's just how computer science works. People need to discover where decentralized components are. That's why even in these protocols, there has to be a discovery layer. Now, some people would say this is where decentralization breaks down because the true design of a distributed system, we now we're getting into some nuanced details. You go from a single computer, which is a centralized system, or a single entity, which is a centralized entity, and they have full authority over everything in their domain. When you take all of these centralized entities and you put them together, in many ways, you end up with a distributed system. That's the only reason why it works is because typically each node is independent of other nodes, but it doesn't mean that those nodes can't make independent decisions, which could be wrong, and this is why consensus is required to make sure everyone agrees, or at least the majority agrees, on what the hell is actually happening. 
So when we think about decentralization, of course, it's a good idea. It's a great design pattern. That's why we can build centralized systems. And it's also the reason why we can build decentralized systems. You can't have one without the other. And so now when we have these new systems, the one thing I will agree with, and I, I want to make sure I'm saying it's super clear. There are business models in this world that have sprung up and have proven to be successful. I work in a world which some would call is filled with walled gardens. I don't have a Facebook account because I don't believe that Facebook is the right place for me to post my content. You have to have a Facebook account to, to view the majority of it. Same is true of Instagram and others. And some would say Twitter is the same way. And so I actually pick and choose where I put my content with that understood. So when someone in the Web3 community says, Kelsey, look what we're trying to do here. We're trying to break up the wall garden. Now, believe it or not, I'm like, oh, hell yeah, what are we doing? Okay, what are we doing? What we're going to do, and I could be wrong and I'm happy to take correction, what we're going to do is create a new platform that's decentralized. But think about this from the customer point of view. I don't know who works at Google, not everyone. I don't know everyone that works at GitHub. All I see is the product. When you think about Ethereum, the first thing I don't come to mind and say, oh my God, look at these decentralized collection of people who've come together to provide this permissionless, censorship-resistant blockchain. That's why I'm going to use it. That's not how the average person will think. They will just see another platform. And for them, it's a trap in their mind. I give you my data on the blockchain. Is it my data? Well, let's exercise that right. Can I delete it? No, you cannot. Well, you can go and explain to me for hours about uh, the need for an append only and something about the consensus algorithm and so forth. But what you got to be honest with is, it's not my data anymore. It belongs to the collective. It's not mine to turn off. It's not mine to say who can and can't access it. Maybe I can encrypt the data first and distribute uh, the key to decrypt it. But we got to be honest, that payload no longer belongs to me. It belongs to the collective. And some people will look at that and say, is that really decentralized? Or did we just create another platform that is backed by a different organizational type that still owns my data? I don't get to create the rules unilaterally. So what we got to be clear about, in my opinion, is that these platforms, all of them actually, tend to centralize over time for a reason. We need protocols which sit on top of raw infrastructure in order to give us something to code against. That's how it works. Think about the black blockchain in general. If you want to run analysis on the blockchain, most of the ones I have experience with don't have native query engines built in. You can't say select all transactions where public key equals. So you tend to have to deal with an aggregator who takes all of that data, aggregates it in one place, and gives you a simpler interface to use. Think about what happens over time. If that product or service becomes popular, then people will use it. Unfortunately, if you have a purist mindset, you will complain. You will say, why is everybody using Alchemy to, to interact with the blockchain? This is not what decentralization is. Why is everyone hosting their NFTs on OpenSea? This is not what decentralization is. That's what I'm getting at. You got to remember how people work. You can't replace 
how society works with a piece of technology. The question you have to ask is, why do people prefer this convenience? And what can you do to compete with that convenience if you believe that they're making the wrong trade-off? You know, you um, earlier in the month, you, you tweeted the article that Tim O'Reilly wrote for CBS News on like Web3, right? And it was literally what you were talking about right there was the almost analogous to the quote that you pulled from the article when you shared it. it was like history teaches us that there will always be new avenues for power to become centralized so even if you're a true believer in blockchain you should look for the next vectors of recentralization and i think it's really interesting that even as we're having conversations of decentralized structures and the ways that that would be useful to build these organizations and businesses and whatnot we still have to have the conversation of people trying to build their version of ivory towers because they felt excluded from the last time. I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, when we talk about decentralization to the common person, it's also good to talk about the value. And I know people like Nader and others, they do that. And I appreciate them for that. The value around the ability to transact with anyone, there's a lot of value in that. There are also drawbacks to that, and I won't get into those today. But I think what we have to be careful about is that picking decentralization in and of itself is also a trade-off. It is not necessarily a net win no matter what you do. Typically, when we start to talk about computers and computer science, anytime that you're forcing yourself to replicate data to an unlimited known set of actors within a pin-only blockchain that has no limit on how big it can grow, you're eventually going to cause centralization because the number of people that can actually host a blockchain that is growing infinite in size over time will be reduced. That is a drawback of that system. And so you cannot necessarily be a purist in all these ideas because the science tells us where certain paths lead. These aren't algorithms, by the way, and a lot of these ideas are decades old. So I think one thing we got to be careful about is let's not get into a situation where we say, since we're working on a new thing, we're not going to study the old thing. Why would you do that? That's not how human progress works. It's like the you, car still has wheels. Yeah. Even if it's an electric <laughs> car, you still need brakes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love that. I love that analogy so much. Um, Kelsey, last time I was in a room with you, you were talking a lot about um, the difference between data structures and, you know, a centralized and a decentralized system. And one of the biggest questions that was coming out of that room or that people were talking about is what are good products or what should be built on a centralized system versus a decentralized system or what should be built or sh should keep be should, people should be building on Web 2 versus Web 3? Because I feel like everyone now is going out saying, I'm going to build the Calendly of Web 3 or I'm going to build the YouTube of Web 3 or whatever it is. So what are or what do you think are products that should be built on decentralized system versus a centralized system? Here's the funny thing. Every product you named is already built on a decentralized system. That's the funny part. So... The thing is, at the very bottom of all of these systems is the internet. You have it. Now, one feature people don't really think about sometimes, which is unfortunate, because this is the human side of the equations. Most humans 
like customer service, right? Like when I buy an airplane ticket, I like the fact that I can call somebody and say something like, um, I need to change my flight. Uh, there's been a problem and I don't know how to solve it. And there is nothing in the current program or smart contract that knows how to solve my very unique problem. Now what? And humans, believe it or not, humans are really good at solving problems that have never been seen before in the time of need. Software doesn't work that way, actually. Software is only a manifestation of things we already know or believe we know. And when we see unexpected results, there's so many stories around what happens when software sees unexpected results. So humans also like to see customer service. What happens if something goes wrong? Now, when we start to talk about decentralization versus centralization, I don't know if this analogy is perfect, but I believe that when you move the accountability slider left and right, let's say you have a pure decentralized system, and let's say you go with the path where no one knows who anyone is. Okay, that's fine. Everyone just go into this thing and the technology will make it right. Now, some would argue maybe it's okay for currency to work this way. I think the jury is still out on this one. But some people would say, you know, it's all about the numbers. If the numbers add up at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who did the math as long as we know the system underneath has all the right things in place. Okay, no problem. But what happens when you try to apply this to a different problem like buying medication? If I order my medication and someone sends it to me and says, Kelsey, this is your medication. Why is it true? Because it's in the blockchain. So, all right, cool. All right, the blockchain says, this is my medication. So I say the blockchain can't lie, right? And I buy and I take the medicine and my arm falls off. Like, what the hell? I kind of need my arm, bro. Like, so now I got to call somebody. It's like, hey, I just took this medication and my arm fell off. So I'm talking to you with my left hand and I prefer to be using my right or actually both hands. But I can't do that now because you got the wrong thing. Well, in a fully, fully decentralized system, who is going to answer the phone? And I know some of you will be like, Kelsey, you could just start a DAO, right? You can just start a decentralized organization. I'm like, all right, cool. Give me that. What phone number is the DAO going to put on the website? And when I call the phone number, who is going to answer? And we've all called customer service before. So I'll walk you through it. Hey. My name is Bob, and uh, how are you doing today? I was like, hey, I would be doing better if my arm didn't fall off after taking this medication. Oh, I see, I see. Uh, where'd you get the medicine from? Hmm, now that I think about it, I have no idea where I got this medicine from. My wallet said that this was the right medicine. For me, it came from the blockchain, so I blame the blockchain. It's like, okay, I see your point, Mr. Hightower. Uh, let me put you on hold for a minute. And the minute turns out forever because there is no one to escalate to. There is no one responsible for that situation. So now let's move the slider to the right. When I call, we need to have a different conversation. Is this FDA approved? Where'd you ship it from? If it doesn't work, who is going to pay my medical bill? Who am I going to sue? Who's going to appear in court? Whatever system you're talking about billing, building, 
whoever is responsible for ultimately showing up with their name, that becomes the centralized entity or whoever they work for. So whether we, we talk about this Pierce idea of a decentralized world, we live in a world where accountability is required. It's just how it works, folks. You can't get around the need for accountability. So whether the system itself under normal operation, when everything goes right, can be decentralized. Here, here's, I'm going to say it now. I agree with you. When nothing goes wrong, these systems work. When something doesn't go wrong, I guarantee you, you're going to reach for that slider and try to move it to the centralized and say, hey, all my coins are gone. All of these NFTs I collected are gone. <laughs> yep. All I was, need to do something about this. We've seen this already like a lot of times. A lot. Like what uh what was this? Two weeks ago when the phishing email got sent with OpenSea and there was the that whole cascade was, oh my God, what is OpenSea doing? This is a good point because again, I'm not bashing Web3. Web3 as a set of technologies to build certain types of apps. All day, knock yourself out. I worked on systems that were not ready to go day one. When Kubernetes came out, I remember the majority of the industry was laughing at us because we couldn't handle more than like 50 nodes per cluster. Everyone was like, this is a joke. Here's other systems doing thousands of nodes. Why are you all wasting your time? Now Kubernetes can do 15,000 nodes because we listened to that feedback and criticism and we addressed the problems and we were pragmatic in our approach. So when I look at this idea that everyone in the world is going to learn how to do self-custody, the reason why we have insurance, the reason why we have the ability to do chargeback, if you're unfamiliar with some of these terms, I encourage you to go research when credit cards came out and they believed that they actually had no responsibility if you paid the wrong merchant or your credit card got stolen. Nope. Regulation showed up. And remember who's making the regulation. I know we like to think of this like Dark Vader and Star Wars, that there's some mysterious entity we call the government that roams the universe doing bad stuff all the time. There are actual people who care about you. Maybe it's your parents, your cousin, but someone actually cares about you and they get paid through taxes and AKA they have a government job. And some of those people want to make sure you don't get hurt. And in order to do that, they regulate some of these systems. So to your question, I believe humans are incapable of building perfect systems. And when we cannot build perfect systems, then we have to have a way to settle our disputes. And we're not just talking about technology here, right? There are people are trying to escape war-torn countries and being denied physical access because of the way they look. doesn't matter how much Ethereum they have in their wallet doesn't matter how many NFTs they have. That is no use at the border when you're trying to leave. So just make sure we're clear that technology does not solve all problems. I'm not saying that you propose that it will solve all problems, but we just got to make sure people are clear that there's always going to be a human technology relationship. 100%. And uh, I, I do think it's very interesting that you mentioned insurance in the conversation because... Um, are you familiar with OpenDAO at all? I think I've heard about it, but please educate me and explain it to everybody else on the call, myself included. I want to be honest. I did. I looked into it the week that everything, it was like real popping on Twitter. And after that, I kind of fell off. But 
from what when I was looking at it the first week, right? It from my understanding it was propped up as a way to uh, support uh, people who fell victim to certain situations and correct mistakes that happened on OpenSea, like a community way of pulling together funds. And in my head, I kind of looked, it, it sounded a lot like insurance, like you're putting money into a pool so that there's a pool of money to distribute amongst people who fall victim to human error or to scams or to phishing emails, right? Uh, and it seems like even when like when we were talking about DAOs before, when you create a DAO to like correct the human mistakes and you're buying coins to put like funds into a DAO's reservoir to help distribute to people who fall victims to situations, that sounds to me a lot like insurance. So since I don't know much about open DAO, I don't want to proclaim yeah, what yeah. they are aren't doing, but I think let's just say it's just close to that, for example. This is what we mean by studying history. Or actually, forget that. This Study the current present. Most insurance companies, if you ever look at them, they're mutual trusts. All the policyholders, their money is pulled together, number one, to comply with the law, like some people, some states in the U.S. at least. You need car insurance in case you hit someone and so they can be made whole. Right. We can't just have a bunch of people say, oh, I don't have any money. Too bad. You've lost your car and now you have hospital bills that none of us can pay for. That's unacceptable. So as a society, we said, you know what? We're going to pull together our funds in insurance. And if you look at it, most of these are kind of mutual trust or mutual companies that take in the money. They make very safe investments with the money, meaning maybe they only get maybe three or four percent return on that cash. And then they have a risk profile that says, who can be a member, right? Who will I give insurance to? And so based on that risk profile, you know that you're going to have certain amounts of accidents per year, higher rates of accidents, depending on the city, state, or driving conditions. And so based on that, you try to make a formula that says, we will make a small bit of profit, but more importantly, there will be money there as a collective. And guess what? I don't know the other members of my insurance company. I have never met them before, but yet... I trust that if I put my money into the insurance policy every month, that I get back this piece of paper that says, Kelsey, you are insured for this amount of coverage. If these things happen, here's what will happen. And this has been the case for actual hundreds of years. Dow didn't invent this idea of bringing people together under a clear set of terms with financial impact. We've already been doing this. Now, is DAO a better way of doing this? I think the jury's out, but I think what we have to understand is just because it's a DAO doesn't make it a good idea. Look at the other organizational structures that have existed already, and maybe you can replicate one of those systems and structures through software. That is an idea. Remember what I said earlier. Software tends to be an articulation of what we already know or have practiced. Software tends to have bugs, so there's always ongoing correction required. The worst software you can write, and I've done plenty of it, when you write software about something you don't know anything about, that's the worst and most dangerous kind of software. I think people should be organized this way. What about laws? Ah, we don't care about no laws. We're just going to make up our own rules. But it might turn out that your smart contract 
that's backing your DAO actually violates laws. It like literally may violate a law. So the worst part about this is you may now be leaving evidence of how you are breaking the law. Now, everyone that's a member of the DAO, unbeknownst to them, by joining the DAO, are now breaking the law as a whole. Now, how do you defend yourself, right? You can go on Twitter and say, hey, everyone in the we didn't know what we were doing DAO needs to put in 50 more E so we can go to court so that we all don't get arrested. It's like, dude, what the hell is this, bro? You weren't thinking about all the other things required to be a compliant organization? Yeah, I don't know. Something, something blockchain. See, that's unacceptable. We have too much history. There are too many people alive today that have expertise. So I'm going to go back to the earlier point. Just because you're working on something new doesn't mean that you can ignore the present or the past. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a lot of times uh, I, it does seem like one of the things that tends to be forgotten is that even when you create like an NFT profile picture project and you have 10,000 NFTs and you're running this community, like that's still an organization. And it seems like that is one of those things that can easily be forgotten sometimes when there's so much hype surrounding a lot of things, right? And that when certain things happen, like, for example, fraud or money laundering, like that is still against the law. So when people find out or able to trace back who you are, you end up with your cringe music videos on the front of the New York Times. Like, that's just how it's going to go. And I want people to be like, there's some systems you can study. I'm not just highlighting problems with no solutions. Look what happens in the open source space, right? So open source is a good uh, example of a decentralized group of people coming together for a common cause. There is nothing wrong with that. So think about software. Uh, I could pick on any number of open source projects, but think about this. A random person from anywhere on the internet can use whatever ID they want to contribute code to your project. Now, you might be a great maintainer and you say, look, we are welcoming all people, even bots. We don't really check. So the code comes in. And so you believe with a careful eye, you look at the code to make sure it's good. Unbeknownstin' you, you've just merged a backdoor to the software. The other thing you've just done is you've also lended your reputation to this anonymous person. So when people go download the project, they believe since you merged it in that everything is good. Now, listen, there is no way to prevent that from ever happening because you can do bad things with your real identity as well. But one thing to keep in mind is when something bad does happen, let's say that software gets shipped and now it's running on millions of servers around the world over a 10-year period. Now someone finds a bug in this backdoor or someone exploits that bug in the back door. It's going to be very important to be able to trace that down and decide how the hell did that ever happen. And what you're seeing in the open source community is people are starting to um, need a little bit more information about who's contributing to what system, who's actually involved. Like if you knew that certain people were involved in your DAO, would you still be a member? I don't think it's okay to say, well, I don't want to know. So I will never have that responsibility to decide if I want to actually do business with people like this. You still have personal accountability. And so just like in the open source community, which has leveraged this model so well, 
we have to be very clear that there's still going to be accountability if that software is then abused by this very same person that you don't know who it is. Going forward, your community will say, hey, we need a little bit more clarity on where this code is coming from for my own personal safety. It's um, Sorry, go ahead, Remy. I was going to uh, just do a throwback to an article that got written in The Verge a while back because you mentioned the open source and how uh, it was talking about uh, well, the headline was why you can't rebuild Wikipedia with crypto, right? And it was an interview with one of the folks and contributors of Wikipedia talking about how a lot of the issues that they've worked through and had come up in w building Wikipedia are a lot of the issues they see people running into in Web3, people not realizing that this is when there's certain incentives for certain things and you have a lot of people doing governance through a community and all of it is open source, it things can get dicey in ways that you didn't think of. Um, Randy. Yeah, I wanted, I think this brings us to really, really niche conversation of what the cybersecurity um, looks like in, in, in Web3. Is there, you know, an entity that protects you know, people from 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 attacks, from scams, from you know what what does what does security and decentralization look like or could look like potentially? So one big part of security that I think people forget is it's a practice. Some forms of security isn't really about breaking into things. One big security attack vector is denial of service. So what would that look like in the Web three world? Let's say everyone likes Ethereum and lots of people build on this decentralized blockchain. Well, it has a consensus protocol and it has to deal with things like trash transactions, right? Like you can submit bad things to the network and then be like, dude, this is totally invalid. What the hell is this? But the system must still evaluate it. And so what happens is in a denial of service, we've seen this happen to GitHub where some botnet network or bad group of people flood GitHub with so much traffic, the system is no longer usable by anyone else. And you say, wow, Kelsey, that is a security problem. And it's not about necessarily building the most perfect software because all software must respond to requests to figure out if they're valid or not. Now, you can always build a layer on top that tries to actually filter these requests, but even that system must still filter the request. And then how much bandwidth do you have? Because if the thing that's filtering requests isn't truly decentralized and that the rejection of requests is validated by the majority of the nodes, then how do I know that the one operator of that system isn't picking and choosing what transactions get through? Right now we're back to the original problem. We have a small authority deciding what makes it and what doesn't. You could say, well, it depends on what code they're running. Well, we still need to trust but verify. So let's get back to without that extra layer. So let's imagine a world where eventually a nation state decides they will send your blockchain a lot of traffic. Now you have to figure out how will you deal with this traffic. I promise you, you're going to really wish that you had a great relationship with the various network providers to help you 
balance that load, shed that load, or do something with it. But guess what happens in the meanwhile? Everyone that's actually trying to use your cryptocurrency to do something valid will now be in line waiting for all of this noise to clear up. Typically, in the Web2 world, there's an entity that has an SOA. I have a service level agreement that says, if the system doesn't work for you in this time frame, uh, I will take care of it. And so I have a lot of power in which to respond to these bad things. I can make a decision quickly. Hey, we're starting to see some bad traffic. We've decided that we're going to block off a particular country where we see bad traffic from. No voting. No, I don't know what you do in the DAOs. Like, I don't know, do y'all get on Discord or something and decide if it's okay to block this particular country? Either way, I'm going to make a very quick decision to shed that load, and I'll do a report later to tell you why it exactly happened because I am responsible. So that's one valid area that we should be concerned about is that denial of service is one security practice we should be mindful of. The other security practice, I think, is when I every time I hear code is law. I'm scratching my head and be like, no, the law is the law. I don't care what your smart contract says. If the courts say it's invalid, then it's invalid. You will go to jail. So relying too much on a smart contract is a dumb decision when you realize how the world actually works. But I'm not saying smart contracts are bad. I'm saying we have to put them into context. So think about the security problem. I've seen, and it's not everybody, so I want to be very clear. Most people I've interacted in the Web3 community have actually been really nice. They have DM'd me and offered to give me assist, uh, assistance and guidance. They've shown me how things work. They've even given me code walkthroughs. But there are cases that don't make any sense to me. When you tell someone to do their own research, think about that for a moment. I go buy a hamburger and I'm actually vegetarian, so I don't know why I would be buying a hamburger, but let's call it like a, a veggie patty. And it turns out that it tastes too good. I'm like, yo, you sure this uh, vegetarian? They're like, yeah, but it's one of those impossible burgers. I'm like, okay, I'm feeling it. But it turns to find out it's actually meat and I get sick and go to the hospital. And I say, man, what the hell was that? They're like, bro, you should have did your own research. I was like, How? Would I research what's in this thing? Like, is there is there a a, a microscope? Is there? A, I'm not walking around with a meat tester in my pocket. How would I even know what the hell I'm looking at? And then when you tell people to look at the code, we've seen a lot of examples where you look at the code on the surface, and it all looks right. And if you know anything about software testing, you know that all of this stuff is situational. Things may work really well most of the time. There are some security bugs that only work based on time. At 2222, the software behaves differently because of some library you're using that can be exploited. This is what we mean by security. And this is why we need the ability to reverse transactions. When something is exploited, that means the software is not being used as intended. That's how software tends to work. You cannot make perfect software, at least not yet. And so to defend ourselves, we have mitigation strategies and ways to roll things back. I used to work in banking and financing. And whenever we had a bad exploit, we had the ability to make things right. And so when I think about security, 
it's not about building the most secure, perfect system because you cannot. It's about understanding that security is a practice. And when you take away tools in which to practice, you're going to end up with security situations that you cannot recover from, or at least your customers can't recover from. I've been hearing a lot about what the future of, of, of security and software can look like, um, potentially, again, in a decentralized system. And one of the buzzwords I've been hearing a lot is self-correcting software, where, you know, instead of having humans to deal with all of these issues, the software corrects itself whenever there's a problem, whenever it's used in, 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 in ways it's not intended to. Do you think we will ever reach that, that level? And software? Well, I think what we have to realize is that your software is only articulating a small piece of the puzzle. There are compilers that bring their own opinions to what your software should be doing. There's hardware that also bring their own opinions to what your software should be doing. There's also things that are hard to predict. Like if I take a network packet and do something weird to the header, you may not understand that your hardware will react in ways that your software cannot defend against. And remember, your software isn't the boss. The kernel still makes a lot of decisions on what happens. And so this is why exploits are really hard to prevent forever because it's not just your software. Think about your smart contracts. A smart contract runs in a virtual machine. That virtual machine runs on some blockchain. That blockchain runs on some computers. Those computers have kernels. Those kernels have network drivers. Network drivers sit on networks. There's the Intel CPU. The Intel CPU has bugs. There's so many layers to this that I think it's irresponsible to think that because your smart contract is perfect under perfect conditions. That is not true all the time. So I think I said this tweet not long ago that um, a smart contract can't run on the same computer twice. It cannot, because time will be different. And time plays a major role in computing systems, memory layout and architecture. All of these things are different. And so that's why security is a practice. We have to really educate ourselves. It's a practice. You can't make it perfect. And since we can't make perfect systems, maybe one day it will be possible. But remember, in order to have these flexible machines, these flexible uh, computing machines, we almost make trade-offs for performance that can open the door for security bugs. So I'm not quite sure we can build a perfect system unless you're really talking about a very limited system, meaning you got to get rid of the uh, general purpose CPUs. You got to get rid of all the general purpose stuff because all of that is an attack surface. So maybe you can make a perfect microwave. Think about your microwave. The code on your microwave does very simple operations. Turn things on turn things off. But remember, the software must interface with the hardware. Hardware has its own problems, right? Let's say the sensor about the temperature in the microwave is broken. How does your software know that? So it's going to be making the wrong decisions. So if you take anything away from this part of the conversation is that security is a practice. Do not fool yourself or your customers that you can build a perfect system that violates the laws of computing. Oh, I love that. I'm just like <laughs> sucking it all in like a sponge. I really do appreciate how you 
I do have to say, you do a really good job of explaining very, what I'm assuming are very complex concepts, but like you do a really good job of like comparing it to a microwave and makes it simple. I just wanted to say that you do a really great job with analogies. Um, real quick, I know we are coming up on an hour. I wanted to ask you if you had a hard cutoff of when you wanted to get out of here. I don't. I'm on a two month vacation, so I got a lot more time than a lot of other people. All right. So I want to throw at least one more question. And if would you be comfortable with doing audience Q&A? Is that something you want to do? You want to just have it between us? I'll leave that up to you. Oh, no, I came here for the people. So if people got questions, I want to definitely do my best to authentically answer them. I bet. In that case, uh, one more question that I personally really want to ask. And then we can we'll open it up for audience Q and A. Um, so I think I referenced the tweet earlier where you tweeted about projects that were detached from coins, right? I was wondering if you like what your perspective was on projects such as like the Alfa Romeo Tonale, which is a car that they're say they're going to attempt to put the service record on blockchain right so uh from my understanding from watching is that they're the computer systems in the car would when they get serviced and the computer gets updated it would update that onto the blockchain and like a service record nft right uh that essentially would not from my understanding wouldn't have a cost to the consumer built part of the project and projects such as uh po-op which is an L2, which essentially is just like a token that people can use to give um, like memorabilia, but digital and is also free to both the people, the distributors. Like if I were to send a poet for everybody that came to this event and for the attendees, so people who want to claim a poet. I mean, look, cool, do it. You know what I mean? Why not? You know what I mean? I, I think. We've seen all kind of things that companies have done over the years. Doesn't mean they'll do them forever, right? You know, um, we, I remember they used to give you posters when you bought movie tickets all the time. Eh, now they don't really do that anymore. I remember when you bought a phone, they used to put headphones in the box. They don't do that anymore. I remember there were phones that had headphone jacks. Eh, they don't really do that anymore. And so I think a lot of this stuff is situational. Like, look, if NFTs are cool, a lot of people are excited about them. You believe it's sustainable. Sure, why not leverage it? But here's the thing. If I'm a auto manufacturer, my guess is I got to comply with laws in every place that that car is driven, registered in, or sold. And so if someone told me one day that the blockchain went away because of reasons, you can't go to court with that. Yeah, we... Um, um, yeah, all of our records are on the blockchain, and uh, turns out that in your particular country, your government has banned access to the blockchain for reasons. And uh, that, that means that uh, you can't also get the service records. They're like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah, 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 we know that blockchain was for pictures on OpenSea. We know it was for cryptocurrencies. But we decided to put our database that we are responsible for no matter what happens on a blockchain but the government blocked access to the blockchain. And they're like, what the hell is that? Why, why would you put auto records on a platform you do not control? Well, I went to a Twitter space and they said, 
Web3 and blockchain was about giving control back to the user. Well, as you appear here today in court, you obviously don't have access to the damn records. So what control did you give people? And so you go back to the office and you're like, God, man, we got to solve this, bro. And you call Kelsey. Kelsey shows up and says, hey, man, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. But I think since we have now proven that in order to really own your data, you must be the system of records. Like, Kelsey, what, is, what does that mean? That sounds like a Web 2 kind of thing. I say, yeah, don't worry about it. This is like computer thing. That's okay. It's a computer thing, and computers are in Web 3, so they'll listen to me. I say, well, you need to be the source. You need to be the system of records. I say, Kelsey, what does that mean? That means that you should keep a copy of everything in case something changes in the future. That's what power means. Power means you always have access to your thing no matter what. And you know what? Maybe it is smart to provide an interface like the blockchain to interface to that data. Oh, I see what you're saying, Kel. So we would actually write to our own database first, and then we will write to a particular blockchain. I was like, yeah, because think about it. What if that blockchain fees go really high or one of those DDoS denial of service attacks happens and you don't actually get to write the record? Ah, good point, Kels. So we can actually write to a local database where the service occurs. That's right. And then we should synchronize that database to a more central database that we control. Again, correct. And if our customers really, really like blockchain, we should take that system of record and generate a blockchain entry and an NFT to match. And therefore, if something bad happens, we can always reference our system of truth. And basically, we can use the blockchain like a digital receipt that you bought something. Because guess what? I am still responsible for the actual parts in the shop. So if someone says that they put on some brake pads, I don't care what the blockchain says. If the brake pads are not there, or we put the wrong ones on, I actually need to resolve that problem. I actually put on the wrong brake pads. That's not the right serial number. Guess what I need to do? I need to go update my system of record, and then maybe I make a new entry into the blockchain. That's fine, but we have to have a way to be responsible because you're a car manufacturer. These things actually matter. So that, that would be my advice to a company like that. It's like nothing wrong with using a blockchain as an integration point with a, a community of users that want to use it, knock yourself out, no problem. But as a good engineer with plenty of experience, no way in hell do you give up your system of record. That's what you own. That's what it means to own your own data. So I do have, sorry, one more question before we open it up to Q&A. What do you think VC's roles in Web3 or decentralized systems should look like? Man, 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 so much to unpack there. When you say you're building a system to return power to the people, and you take money, not necessarily from the people, but from a centralized entity, who has the power? Because I want to return on my investment. This ain't charity. These aren't donations. So my question would be is, how are they getting their money back? Exactly how they're getting their money back, because I would like to see. Are they going to get their money back through fees? How much did you promise them to get back? Since we're talking about transparency, 
maybe we should upload the cap table, which is the stock allocation to all the investors and partners and employees. Let's go ahead and put that on the blockchain. Oh, we don't want to put the cap table on the blockchain. Oh, okay. Do we, can we put at least the term sheet on the blockchain? Since we're talking about transparency, right? So let's put the entire offer sheet and term sheet and valuation on the blockchain. And the thing is, if you look at the deal structure and you say, well, how are you going to get them their money back? Where's it coming from? Now, I don't actually see anything 100% wrong with taking money from VCs because VCs are here to try to fund ventures. And if you got a venture that's worth funding, it is only appropriate that people who have capital to allocate be allowed to fund that venture. I actually don't see a ton wrong with it, but I do see the potential for the wrong incentives to show up. I've worked at lots of startups. And if anyone has ever worked at a startup, you might know how some of these board meetings go. We think the product should go in this direction. It will be best for our users. Your VC looks around and says, uh, yeah, but uh, we kind of need a return on investment. So either you can be the CEO of the company that gets us to that return, or we will find another CEO. Which one do you want? And that's human pressure. That's a lot of power structure and dynamics that are not necessarily integrated into the systems that we're building because when a person has to answer to some other authority, then that tends to leak into the decisions that get made to these other systems. So I would just say this. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with VCs in Web3. But I do think if you're a participant in Web3 because you really believe this idea that we want to return the structure and power back to the people, you have to ask real questions. What did you give away for the money you raised? Because ain't nothing free in this game. Yeah. That's, great, great answer. That, yeah, that's, yeah, that's phenomenal. It's like, what did you actually give away? And it's like, uh, it always comes up the question of like, are incentives aligned as well? Which I think you also touched on, which is just, yeah, that's great. Okay, so Q&A, if anybody has questions, feel free to request. Um, the one thing I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to pin the rules that I have for spaces. Stay on topic. If you have any questions, look at the rules above. Um, just want to simply make sure everybody understands we're here for a respectful conversation. Stay on topic. All right, cool. So, G, what's up, fam? You had a question for Kelsey? Yes. So, that's right. so um, Kelsey, what do you think about the the this concept of making assumptions when we are building systems? And are these Web3 folks making too many assumptions? Well, I mean, laws are laws. So whether you want to respect them or not, or inadvertently break them, for example, if you don't pay attention to the speed limit while you're driving, and you get pulled over, you can tell the cop, I didn't even look at the speed limit. So therefore, what law did I break? And as they put you in the back of their police car on your way to jail, you can really think through your responsibility. Your responsibility is to pay attention to the speed limit and adjust accordingly. Now, we've seen a lot of SEC regulations being applied. We've seen a bunch of fines being handed down. So you're free to ignore the law but that doesn't mean anything when the law comes for you. So that, that is just a matter of maturity, right? The laws are still there 
And some of this stuff, to be fair to some people in this community, there is a bunch of gray areas that they're trying to work in because, to be honest, a lot of countries, that's just how it works. You operate within the gray area and you pay a fine as cost of doing business. And normally it's worked so well that companies even IPO with this particular strategy, right? We watched some of the ride-sharing companies do some of this, right? Knowing good and well that it was illegal to have a service in a certain district, and they did it anyway, and just said, we'll pay the fine until the laws become more clear. So I wouldn't necessarily blame the Web3 community for this, but one thing we can do, and I think as more of these Web3 communities grow and really start to deal with regulation, they'll understand the value of having people on the team who can really proactively navigate these things because at some point you can't afford to keep paying fines because you're not paying attention to the speed limit. Yeah, I, where did I see that example? There was an example not that long ago where uh, people were making like thousands off of something that they were paying a $500 fine for. Like when that kind of situation exists, it's like kind of mute. Yeah, we call that arbitrage, right? Like there are a lot of people who say, as long as the fine isn't worse than the game, then I'll just do it. Just something you want to add, Brandy, before we get to Natter? No, no, I was just saying, again, that's another great analogy. Uh, I never thought of it that way, but that's that that's that's very true to a lot. Even to myself, I actually, I have a lot of investment in, in OpenDAO um, and their token. And one of the things that I never thought about is, you know, if they do something illegal or uh, am I am I liable to that? Do I have to contribute to that? Is there, you know, is, are there fees? Do am I am I going to be, you know, served at the end of the day? So those are really great points and analogies that, you know, I never thought of. But Nader, um, the floor is yours. And I know we were referencing hey, um... content earlier, so I wanted to give you a shout out as well. Um, yeah, thank you. So I've been I've been listening to this, wrapping up my workday on my computer, and I'm in my car on my way home. So if my audio isn't perfect, um, I apologize. But yeah, I have a I have a comment and a question. Um, I guess towards uh, Kelsey. First of all, my comment is that I've tuned into a few spaces now where I've heard you talk about Web three. Um, a couple of them, I think, were with Angie, or, or maybe one of them was with with, with Angie, and the other was with uh, Ilhan. And um, I have to say, like, every time I've ever listened to you speak, I've learned a lot. And I really appreciate, like, your perspective with someone of your background of, like, you know, I don't know how many years of programming, but probably at least 20 or something like that. Um, I just always learn something. And I really and I really just appreciate your perspective that you kind of take the time out of your busy schedule, which I know you're very busy, and um, to kind of, like, tune in and talk about the stuff that a lot of us, like, are really really passionate about right now so that's my comment and, and i really uh my second comment might be just like uh just talking about your perspective i think a lot of people on both sides are very binary in their support or their opposition and you hear people on the pro web 3 side often kind of um try to outline it as like it's going to save the world or it kind of has all these benefits and they never talk about the drawbacks and you often hear the opposite with a lot of the old school people in tech uh, just kind of being very anti-Web3 and uh, kind of just not even getting into the discussion of any of the possible 
uh, benefits of some of these uh, technologies, whereas you seem to come in and have more of like a nuanced take on it. And like, I think it's more of like a genuine uh, take that I really appreciate. So I just wanted to kind of uh, say that. That makes me smile. I mean, I think one thing that I've always tried to do, even in my critique, is that I want to be responsible. And, and, and when I ask these questions or I make these comments, I'm not trying to be an asshole. I'm not trying to show people or think that I'm better than anyone. I'm just trying to kind of contribute to these discussions in a way that actually, I think, actually make things better. I've met people in my DMs that say, Kelsey, I was working on a project and something you said made me go back to the drawing board and build a better system. And for those that don't know, I don't care if it's Web 2 or Web 3. I'm happy for that person because that tends to do what I do at my day job. I'm not here to attack you, to, to make you fall down. I'm trying to actually help you practice so when you do, you know how to get back up. Um, and then I would say, like, my question would be, and this is, I have a few things I would like to throw at you, but I know that a lot of other people have questions too, but the one thing that I kind of appreciate and then am interested in coming into the space from the perspective of a developer beyond the use cases around um, uh, tokens and um, I guess this idea of being able to eat more easily maybe transact value is this idea that when we start building on these completely open and public backends, we have this composability that is really, really powerful if we can actually build out as, uh, you know, enough applications on these types of backends. So one example of, of this and quote unquote like the Web2 world is just an open API that all of us kind of have used probably a million times in our career. Um, a very good example of this is the Twitter API and how great it was at one point and how many uh, dozens and, and maybe hundreds of businesses we're kind of built on that Twitter API. And then, um, but we are kind of at the, uh, we are at the uh, control of Twitter though. If they decide to change their API, they, and they have, they kind of shut down those businesses. And you often hear about people saying, when you're building a business on top of someone else's API, like you don't really uh, control your business, they do. Whereas if you're building on top of a um, immutable backend and this, this data that is going to be there forever, you kind of have that, um, you know, security or you, you have that um, assumption that you can continue iterating and building and creating and essentially taking advantage of other people's uh, backend infrastructure to kind of build out a, an, an application. And you can kind of always assume that that data is going to be there. That seems to be a really interesting uh, aspect of it. And you start seeing already this kind of play out and some of the DeFi and NFT uh, space, but I'll, but I'm not even that interested, honestly, in, in those aspects. I'm more interested in like if this continues to evolve and we improve and we kind of have this ability to build out uh, applications that are, I would say, like more real world for the average user, like what that might look like. I love this question because this is the intersection that I operate at. So one thing I think is very healthy to do as a community is separate protocols from their implementation. When we tend to do that, we tend to get it right. Like think about um, TCP IP, think about DNS to some extent, there's a de facto standard there. 
Kubernetes is one of those systems as well, where you don't even actually have to use the Kubernetes binaries to actually have a Kubernetes system and it will still work. So when we think about protocols, what are we talking about? We're talking about contracts. Like in Europe, I believe, um, they have the whole open banking system where they're saying all the banks must implement a protocol. And that protocol is going to allow any other entity to deal with various banking needs, whether it's transfer money or list your account balance, whatever you can imagine. And so you say, okay, next question would be is, who honors the contract? So in the decentralized world, you would say, as long as this community is around, we will have access to the system. Remember, forever is a very long time. And so in a situation where the community still likes the project, there'll be nodes running and you know people will protect the data. Y'all remember MySpace? A lot of people probably thought MySpace was going to be around forever. And look at it. It's not really a thing people use very often anymore. I thought Napster was the future. When Napster came out, I was like, yo, this is the future. And now not many people use Napster. So when we talk about these APIs, I think it's so important that we decouple the spec from the implementation. So right now, Ethereum is more of an implementation but they do a really good job with some of the specifications. I really like the way they said, here is a NFT specification. So once you actually have a good specification, now you open the door for the real important part, which is competition. If I agree, even with a different implementation, to implement your thing, then it will continue. And as long as people like that API, I can actually have a different implementation that's cheaper to use or more secure, or some other promise that may come out in the future, but I will still be compatible with this API. If you look at the Linux kernel, for example, some people would say that is an open API, the Linux kernel. It has system calls, they're documented, and actually there has been other implementations of the Linux kernel. Gvisor is a good example. Given that Linux has been around for 20 years and it's an open protocol in terms of the system calls, you can actually virtualize the Linux kernel with a separate implementation that runs on user space. And guess what? Everyone benefits. Is it Linux? Technically, no. Does it work with every application that understands Linux? Technically, yes. So I think what's important here is that whether we're talking about Web3 or the Linux kernel, the real value, and I hope this actually rises above the technology implementation, is the specifications and the decoupling from implementation and encouraging people that even if the implementation goes away and we believe that this is still a good idea, that it should live on longer than a particular implementation because that's where things go to die. When it's all or nothing, that is not really where power comes from, in my opinion. So I'm glad you brought that up because I think what we should be thinking about with all of these projects, if you go and build your entire application against Ethereum, you actually have the same problem. If gas fees are too high as a business, you may have to stop operating until those gas fees come down. You don't actually have sole authority over what the gas fees will be now or in the future. You get to participate with everyone. And I know that sounds like an even playing field. I know it does, but it may not be. You might actually be in a country that can't afford any of the gas fees in that range. And so when things change, even though 85% of the community is happy, the 15% that's left behind is now out of business and they will feel the same way 
as people do feeling that they've gotten cut off from the Twitter API. So that's why I would think the most important thing to do as a developer and as a business is push for standards. We push for web standards independently of the web browser. That's where we got to make sure that we don't say our ideas are Web3 ideas. I've been gravitating towards IPFS for this very reason. I look at the specification and I really love the fact that they decouple IPFS from Filecoin. Because if it was all just Filecoin, that means if Filecoin doesn't make it as a cryptocurrency or project, then do we lose everything? That doesn't sound right. But now that they said, hey, here's IPFS, here's how you use it for any version of the web that you're working on. I think that's genius. And I think that's a real sign of community. Yeah, Kelsey, that's awesome. real quick. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Kelsey, real quick, can you pop the bubble on IPFS to like, explain a little bit more? Oh, so let me explain IPFS. And I really think this is a good example of what de the power of decentralization. So if we, if we rewind the clock back to the old school days, like, I don't know, Web1 technologies, where you can host a bunch of files using FTP, file transfer protocol, and you got your little FTP server, you think you're doing something too. You got, you know, got your little files on there. And then people can come around as long as they have the domain or the IP address of your FTP server. Um, and it was really bad because there was no security, right? You just like download random file from Kelsey's FTP server. And maybe I didn't want you to do that. So we added security later. But at the end of the day, that file was only available from ftp.kelseyhightower.com slash some file names. Now, I could rename one of the files. And if you were hard coding that file name, uh, you might be like, man, the file is gone, even though I just renamed it. So it wasn't a content addressable file. What you really care about is not really the file name, even though a file name is a mnemonic, meaning a human tool, so we can refer to things. That is my resume. Well, how do you know it's your resume? Because it says Kelsey Hightower resume.pdf. Oh, okay, makes sense. But what we really care about is what's inside of the document, that there's actually a resume. So FTP was a old school file protocol. There's lots of file protocols. So IPFS comes along and says, hey, you know what? There's some good ideas from what we call content addressable uh, things. So instead of saying Kelsey Hight FTP that Kelsey Hightower for slash file name, what if we can actually just give you the actual like hash of the content? So IPFS colon slash slash this content. And so now what we can do, given how the underlying system works, well, that content can live on any number of servers. Think about Napster and some of this P2P stuff from back in the day. Peer-to-peer -peer networks where any one of us can be hosting the file, but you don't necessarily have to ask me directly. So in that particular world with um, IPFS, I can just go to um, maybe a discovery service and say, or a gateway and say, hey, do you have this file? And it says, well, I don't, but I can find it because there's a server somewhere in the world that has a copy of that file. Well, how do you know it's the right copy? Kelsey, because we're not using file names. We're actually using a hash of the content. So this is exactly what you're looking for. We can almost guarantee it. That's pretty dope because now once web browsers, I think Brave currently supports IPFS. So what that would mean is imagine loading a web page and instead of seeing images at this location like fastly.com slash something something, you now see IPFS colon colon thing. And so that means now we can start to embed these locators in our pages. What's the value? Well, we all hate broken links, don't we? 
You go to a web page like, oh, I'm going to download this really. What? It's gone. What the hell is this? Who doesn't update their domain name? Come on. It's been 20 years of this. You got to do better. But in the IPFS world, now, even though that content has been gone from one server, we may decide that we want to pin it or have it replicated in other places. This is a much better way when we start to think about the web. Forget Web3. This is just a good idea in general. And so we have enough technology now, whether it's a gateway service that can take a name and translate it to this content, or we just teach our tools how to resolve this content. To me, that is a huge improvement over things that didn't have those kind of capabilities. Okay, that's okay. That's great. A lot of information soaking it in. <laughs> I've, I've been like writing down a lot of homework for my <laughs> next few weeks. Um, okay, so appreciate everybody who's been waiting patiently to come ask questions, contribute to the conversation. I believe it's Anthony, Banjo, and then Dylan. So, Anthony, floor is yours, sir. Thank you so much. Appreciate the space and uh, being able to, to, to be here. What's going on, Kelsey? Um, as a Compton native, good to see Long Beach represented in the house. So, oh, man, Anthony is dope. I, I, I won't <laughs> even waste time, but Anthony, I appreciate you being here. Yeah, so um, I, I want to get to brass tacks. Um, you know, I, I was in middle school, you know, in the middle of the dot-com bubble that burst. Um, and, you know, I'm just naive, and, and maybe it's just my generation, but I see um, that same thing maybe playing out with um, Web3, quote-unquote. Um, do, you, do, you do you see that coming? And if so, who do you see surviving uh, past that? Because I, I feel like... Uh, there, there, uh, there was a lot of innovation that came out of that bubble bursting um, that kind of landed us where we are today. I, I wonder if you might take out your crystal ball, um, and, and if you have thoughts, share that with us. Man, 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 I love this because there's a saying, I use it a lot these days. It's easy to predict the future when you're working on it. A lot of the things I talked about today around the problems with Web3 are being addressed by centralized companies. If you lose your NFT, you want someone to make you whole in some way. Whoever has the best customer service, I think, is going to attract the majority of the users. I'm not talking about the peers. I'm not talking about people who want to be like, oh, I got rug pull and it's fine. No, nah, I'm not talking about them. They, they going to do what they do. I'm talking about when you want a million customers. You know, I work at a place where we have products that have 3 billion customers. So when you want customers at that level, which some of these bigger companies want, they're going to provide things like, wait for it, customer service. And so all the other players are going to have to compete with service. Think about it. When you go eat at a restaurant and they serve you bad food and they'd be like, if you don't like it, you can leave. I, I don't know if you're coming back. I, I, don't, I don't know if that restaurant's going to be a while around. Like you'd be looking at the radiance like, yo, do not eat there, bro. First of all, the food is trash. But what's worse than the food is the service. Now, there's some people I only take that from soul food places. Yeah, there you go. Like, unless the food is amazingly good, you might be willing to tolerate bad service. But when you have both, I don't know. So to answer your question directly, I think the open seas of the world are going to survive. I think coin bases of the world will probably survive. And the reason why I say that is they're going to have the teams big enough to deal with the maturity curve. When you have a government that says you will implement 
particular regulation X or adhere to sanction Y, you can't be like, well, we, we, we don't know how to do that. So we just not doing it. Then you will be shut down. So I think this one's actually going to be a little easier to predict because in all of these gold rushes, right, there's always going to be lots of experimentation. I think that's probably the positive thing. So much opportunity for people to see if they want to step up to the challenge. I love that. We see that in open source as well. But then I think what we, when we see projects fall off, slow to respond to security situations, slow with the customer service, customers get burned and they tell other people. So if I had to whip out my crystal ball, I think the companies that look the most centralized will dominate Web3. Hey, customer service wins a lot of hearts. <laughs> and yeah, that's where a lot of value comes from. Yeah, man, that's awesome. Thank you, Anthony. Really good question. Oh man, I look. I, I left Google last last month, and one of the people I knew I was going to miss is Kelsey. So, um, and the great thing is, I just met you what last year. So, uh, <laughs> thanks for answering the question. You hit the nail right on the head. Appreciate it, bro. Appreciate you, Anthony. All right, Banjo, floor is yours, sir. Yeah, uh, just want to piggyback off that. Just talking about centralization provides responsibility and looking at, at blockchains. I'm viewing blockchains as a way to create public good instead of having, I guess, private entities uh, control things, even though centralization is providing that responsibility. How do you see a blockchain acting as a public good that people can use, the system can use? Uh, I know code is not law, but just having this type of public good for people to utilize. So humans at the end of the day still have to verify, but I think blockchains have a way to, to be that public good for us to utilize. Let's talk about that for a moment. Oracle, the big, bad enterprise company that makes a ton of money off of selling people databases, right? Everyone's like, Oracle, I can't believe it. But I would probably wager any money right now that Oracle powers the majority of the public goods services in the entire world. Your water authority, I probably bet you that your water bill, and I actually live in a place where uh, electricity and my water are all uh, nonprofit. So whenever they charge too much money or make a profit, they send me a check every year for the difference. To me, that's a public good. There are lots of other public goods like the Salvation Army. I donate clothes, they give me a receipt, they give people jobs, they help people. That's a public good before the blockchain. We've had public goods. There are homeless shelters where people can get food. They don't even record the transaction that you ate the food because the public good doesn't need to be recorded on the blockchain. So when we think about public goods, we gotta make sure we understand that it's the, the good to the public that is more important than how we record the deed. Now, there might be things that could benefit from transparency. For example, if I promise to take donations and use it for a specific thing, then maybe transparency could be leveraged through the blockchain, or maybe transparency could be leveraged through a uh, Google spreadsheet where I make it read-only. I give you the permission to call every vendor and say, hey, did they really send you that money? I see on this public spreadsheet, think about how a reporter works. If I had a public spreadsheet 
we're not even talking blockchain. It looks a lot like a blockchain. There are little blocks in there and you can chain them together. You can make different colors. Uh, and it won't even cost you anything. But let's say I was a nonprofit doing work for the public good. Remember, the database doesn't do the public good. The database records the public good. So we still got to decouple doing good for the public from the implementation in which we record. So let's go back to the donation example. So I'm going to use something easy like, you know, tracking the money. And let's say we gave this nonprofit a million dollars and they produce the spreadsheet and they maintain it and they make it read only to the world. And they say, you, we will put every transaction on this spreadsheet. And we'll say, well, how do I know it's real? Because I'm going to put my name on it and I'm going to tell you that that's what we're doing via contract language that you can sue me otherwise. So you go down the list and you say, I'm going to call some of the people that you said you've paid and see if you really paid them. So you call the first line and you say that you bought clothes for kids in New York. So I call the number and they say, yes, this organization bought clothes from us. Oh, you have a copy of their receipt. Let me see it. I definitely see that that is exactly what they did. We sent the clothes last week. Oh, you have a tracking number. Yeah, copy and paste that tracking number and go to FedEx website and you will see that the clothes would be have been delivered. Now you could say, well, Kelsey, anyone could have put information there. I get it. Anyone could put information into a blockchain. Garbage in, garbage out. Doesn't change anything. So I think what we have to realize is that no matter what technology we use to record the deed, we still need to verify that it was actually done in the real world. All right. Appreciate that question, Banjo. Uh, Randy did have to dip out. So what we'll do is wrap up the questions from the folks that are on stage. Um, I know there's a few people requested. Well, apologies, we won't be able to get to you. But uh, Bill, what's up, fam? Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, first off, Kelsey, like really big fan. The first time I saw you was at the Chef Conf, um, at Google, uh, the uh, Chef Conf keynote you did, um, which was like in integrating Google Voice to be able to change the version of a uh, like a running server, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, so my question here was regarding uh, the question a few uh, questions ago, uh, the Twitter one. I think there is a nuance that I'd like your kind of thoughts on. There is for sure the protocol matters, but I think Twitter has the network effects and the data that was private that possibly some of those companies used to be able to create their businesses on and the change in the API there uh lost out on that whereas on the blockchain potentially that data is not going to go anywhere um granted like you're not going to be able to create a service like twitter on web3 at the moment but i think that's probably the the kind of leverage that you have versus uh something like the twitter api where you're not going to have the ability to um get get access to the data that they've acquired after uh having that network effect of so many people using their service what um what are your thoughts on that I mean, I think you make a really valid point. The question is, Twitter has invested billions of dollars and they pay a lot of people. I know people are like, oh man, it's a centralized entity where there's like this one person that works at Twitter headquarters raking in all the cash by themselves. That isn't true. There's a lots of people that work at Twitter and these people have come together for a common cause, which is to build Twitter. These aren't faceless entities. They have people that work there. And so those people have come together to produce a product and service. Now, you're right. This group of people uh, 
attempts to build the best product and service to keep the business going, to, to turn a profit, if you will. And so the fact that they have to turn a profit may create this situation that you're bringing up. And I think a lot of people in the Web3 community are bringing up a very valid concern. We know that when you make a tweet, it comes from your mind. So you are the system of record, right? That is a fact. Now, if everyone decided to store their tweets off to the side and use a program to push them into Twitter, then we will be fine, right? Like, you know, TweetDeck, you know, tools like that that say, write the tweet here, and then we will push the tweet to Twitter. So if Twitter went around breaking that API, their users would complain and say, what the hell? My tool doesn't work. And if Twitter keeps up this behavior, we're out. I promise you that Twitter will be reversing that decision ASAP. I know a lot of people think they're just like evil empire that doesn't listen to their customers. Uh, they do. And when enough customers make their bottom line go down, you actually will watch a company actually change. We've seen this time and time again. We've also seen regulation. You know, the government thing most people claim to hate but use every day. Think about it. Imagine a regulation that says Twitter cannot operate in this jurisdiction unless they have a clear and reasonable contract regarding their API and how it's used. And if we find that Twitter is abusing that relationship, we will find them into oblivion. And so there is other dynamics and pressures in play to kind of keep these companies honest. And number one, it's the ability for competition to arise. So I think what we're going to learn, what I'm going to learn, is just how powerful people really are and if they really choose to step up to the plate. Because remember, to build something that competes with Twitter. Remember, Twitter operates at an amazing scale globally. So if you want to have a Twitter clone, you got to understand where the bar is. The bar isn't to have something that looks like Twitter. The bar isn't just to copy Twitter's features and layer in microtransactions. That isn't it. Twitter has held, upheld a global promise to deal with entities in certain countries that say, my citizens can't use Twitter and they figure it out. They figured out Twitter's been around for a long time, and I don't think they've ever lost my data. I can download my data today. So you're right. There are some businesses who don't have a great partnership with Twitter, and yes, they lost access. So all of, my only answer to that question is you have to come and compete with something so good that you will earn. Remember, these network effects were earned. And so if you want to build a competitor, you're going to have to earn it too. And if you say that everything is going to cost money to sustain the network that you're trying to build, then guess what? You may have to actually raise fees because one thing people haven't done is the calculus of how much does it cost to run Twitter without investors and without ads? You're going to find out. And if you don't get the network effects, you might find it's not a sustainable business. So I think we have to just keep that in mind that you're free to compete, but remember, you must earn the network effect that makes Twitter so popular. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate the question, man. All right, Billy, you're up, man. The floor is yours. Thank you. Uh, fairly new to this space. Uh, I heard you speak in a, in a previous talk. Uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, enjoyed your take. Um, my question was, uh, fairly simple and more directed at your personal opinion. I just wanted to know what um, existing 
projects in the Web3 space excite you or, or what um, things are you excited to see in the uh, Web3 space? Again, I, I go back to things like some of the decentralization protocols about like replicating data. So I'm a big fan of IPFS. I'm a big fan because they also throw out through how to deal with the current worlds. So this is why they support things like um, gateways. So I can use a DNS name and through configuration, I can translate that DNS name to an actual file or have a file server kind of um, translate that path into IPFS. I think that is really, really awesome. So I'm really looking forward to people realizing the value of content addressable files and storage. I think that is going to be a big one. Uh, I also like what I see, believe it or not, a lot of systems before Web3 and blockchain relied on private key pairs. Most of those things didn't take off because of the user experience. Like when you generate an SSH key pair, very similar technology, by the way, I've lost my key pair probably every six months and I just generate a new one and I go through the song and dance to distribute it again. So when I saw the way they think about mnemonic keys, so that's where you get that passphrase, 12 letters or so. And that mnemonic passphrase is really clever because you can take those words and there's a little bit of an algorithm you apply. I actually wrote my own wallet just to understand how these things work. And you can take that passphrase and you can generate the exact same private key again. Now, if you think about it, that's kind of a terrible security trade-off because now if someone gets that passphrase, even without them having my private key, they now are equivalent to me as an actor on the network as someone who holds a private key. But that was a good UX trade-off because if people's money are tied to a private key and they lose it and they lose all their money, that's a really clever decentralized recovery mechanism to be able to regenerate your key material to continue on. So it's little things like that, that even outside of the blockchain, I think we should all respect as like, wow, that's a really clever way. And I think because of how valuable these assets people are storing on the blockchain, there was a real need to improve the UX of private key management. I'm not saying that it's a 100% solved problem. Those things make me excited. The things that don't make me excited, you got to remember, from my personal opinion, I'm a minimalist. Consumption to me is not something I seek to do just to do it. Like flexing with NFTs doesn't appeal to me, nor has flexing with gold chains, uh, flexing with $500 sneakers, I'm not saying anything is wrong with those things. I'm just saying that I've never personally have been attracted to, you know, flexing on certain valuable or expensive assets. So that part of Web3 isn't appealing to me, nor is digital scarcity or artificial scarcity. One of the beautiful things, I remember listening to Goody Mob back in the day and CeeLo Green, he said, thank the Lord for making my voice recordable. What he meant by that statement was before we had records and albums and CDs and streaming services, you didn't get to hear that artist unless you saw them in person. And that was it. Either you saw them, you didn't. And the digital revolution meant that that person could record their voice and make it accessible to everyone. Now, we're not saying that they have to give it away for free. Not at all. I'm just saying that there was a mechanism that allowed everyone in the world to have access to an experience. That is a beautiful progression. And some people would say that has been the foundation of Web 2 minus the wall garden. So I'm not going to say Web 2 didn't have its own problems. But this ability to learn from anywhere, from anyone in the world, that's amazing. I don't want us to go backwards. I don't want us to go to a world 
where, you know, people thought DRM was bad. Like you buy a digital book and you can't loan the book to someone because people think that that book should only belong to that one device and to you. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't jive with the ability to buy a book and then let someone borrow that book or gift it to someone. Now, there's nuance here because an artist should be compensated for their work. And if an artist isn't making enough money from selling one book and having it loaned out a million times, that's a fair statement. So maybe we do have things like DRM that ensure an artist is compensated correctly. But that is very different from saying there should only be one of these books. And if you want to read it, we'll go bid on it as an NFT. That makes no sense to me. I like the um, I like the loan book model because I think it does have a potential analogy in Web3 of like, if you were to buy the book that was like an NFT instead of DRM, and then you could just loan it via transferring. I, I think that is like a cool use of scarcity because it's saying it's a product, but it's like the scarcity of the product isn't the value in the product. And I think that's something that you're touching on that is like very key in some um in some really cool things that could And we be. should keep in mind that libraries do this today without blockchain, right? Libraries, you can go and check out digital books, click click, and they will even send it to your Kindle today without a blockchain or NFT. So this is why I always like to just remind people, study the present just to make sure you're not claiming victory over a domain that isn't uniquely yours. All right. Last question. Ren. Nice name, by the way. <laughs> likewise, likewise. Um, <laughs> uh, thanks, guys, for hosting this space. And thanks, Kelsey. It's been really interesting. Uh, my question was kind of about um, the money incentive. I, I can't kind of so i've been i've been digging into web3 a lot and i can't get away from this kind of gnawing feeling of money being a really poor long-term incentive particularly around coins and there's lots of talk about them solving the kind of cold start problem you'll get people in and you back it up with a great product they'll stick around but the coin problem or the incentive is actually very counter to that in my head so it incentivizes spreading your bets really widely. It incentivizes you getting the next person in the door just because it's valuable for you to get them in the door. There's not a lot of incentives to use the product, even if it's even if it's could good or could be good. And when you pair that with like liquidity, including for the people who are building it, it feels like there's a lot of forces kind of pulling in the direction of pump this thing up and abandon it rather than turn it into a long-term project uh, that people can kind of benefit from over the long term. I was wondering if you had any kind of thoughts or view on, on that incentive problem. That's a really good point because, you know, it's almost like the problem that a lotto winner has. The psychology that I bought a lotto ticket for a dollar and I have no idea how to earn a million, but I just got one today. And you lose your damn mind. You like party, 
everywhere. It's all on me, right? You, I mean, you just wilding out. Like you ain't even move out your apartment, but you in Vegas renting 25 rooms for you and your friends. You popping ballos. You got Rolexes. I'm like, damn, you ain't even take a shower? Nah, bro, we, we, we getting at it. We spending the bread. It's like, okay. A week goes by, you go back to the apartment. You don't have the million anymore. And now you're sitting around and your tax bill comes. It's like, hey, yo, you got to pay taxes. And you're like, what? Yeah, you owe taxes. So we need $400,000 on that million. And you ain't got it. You were not prepared on what to do with that money. You had no incentive of really pacing yourself and building up to the appropriate situation where you can actually go and have that party. You just did your thing. So think about in Web3 when I have a token. And typically in the business, you open your restaurant, right? Let's just stick to the restaurant situation. Your food is trash, but you have a token backing the restaurant. And everybody loved the token. Like they were like, yo, who thought of putting broccoli as the mascot for this token, man? I love broccoli. I'm all in. It's like, dude, you finna mortgage your house to buy some broccoli tokens? Yeah, bro. It's connected to this restaurant and everything. Have you ever been to the restaurant? Nah, I ain't never really been to the restaurant. They only got one location and it's 3,000 miles away. But did you see the token though? Yeah, the website said the food is going to be so good that we're going to force people that eat here to buy the token first. And that's how you're going to get your money. It's like, oh man, I got to get on this broccoli token. Have you eaten at the restaurant? Nah, bro, but it was 50 cents yesterday. It's $3 a day. So you're the restaurant earner, and you set aside a million tokens for yourself. You are in the process of creating your menu and setting up the third location. You look at your balance, and you see $50 million. You got a couple of choices. You could redeem some of your own tokens and pull out 25 million. So you got 25 million in your bank account right now. And you go and it turns out you don't actually know how to cook. But the price of the token has gone through the roof. You think about it for a while. You say, you know what? I don't really think I like restaurants. And so you close the restaurant because you never actually had to earn money from making food. You got all of your winnings before doing anything. And I think some of these projects are hurting themselves because they don't have to build a smart business. They may not even have to pick the right location or have a popular menu. They don't have to serve food and get feedback from critics and customers to see if they should adjust that menu and then land on the right menu with the right people, with the right branding over time and build themselves up to a sustainable business. That's really, really hard. But in this world of tokenomics, people are saying, you may not even have to build a business at all. Just claim that you will, and we can start issuing tokens and stocks in a business that doesn't exist. And if you pick the right logo, you make the right promises, hell, you can make the wrong promises, like living in a virtual island where you can hang out with all your friends. It's like, wow, really, bro? But who cares? The token can be a distraction. What I'm not saying is that tokens are bad just for because they're tokens. I'm saying is when you want to build a sustainable business, you want to pace yourself. You raise the capital that you need. You hire the people at the right time to execute on the business vision. If you go give a startup, I actually have been in the startup game for a very long time. 
I've advised a lot of startups. I've won some deals and I've lost some. One thing you'll notice, and I've seen this trick be played a lot. You get in an elevator with the founder ready to pitch their startup. You go into that room and say, all I need is $500,000 in seed money to get my business off the ground. And so the VC looks at you and in their mind, 500,000 is immaterial. They could write that check and forget about it. Whether your company works or not, it will be a good relationship building tool for them to give you the seed money. It will be a great conversation over drinks five years from now. But VCs will often ask this question. What would you do if I gave you $100 million? And some founders are unprepared to answer such a question because they, don't, they can't think past step one, step two, step three to figure out how to actually deploy $100 million of capital. In their mind, I was just going to hire my friends from my last job and we were just like trying to build something to see if it's going to work out. They are unprepared to deal with that amount of capital. So flip this situation around. You launch a token before your business even gets off the ground. You wake up one morning and that token now has a market cap of $100 million and all of the founders have $15 million each in their bank account. Do you not expect them to cash out some of that? Because remember, the deal wasn't that they couldn't touch that money until they were successful. The deal was they get to pull their coins out just like you can. Why are we still surprised that founders are deciding to pull their coins out before they actually deliver the business? So I do think tokenomics alone can be a distraction because that was never the primary goal. The goal wasn't to scream Web3 and talk about your usage of blockchain. The goal was to actually build something that people like and love and then prove it by getting them to pay for it consistently. Now, what we're proposing is you no longer have to do that in order to cash out. An amazing, amazing answer. I think I've seen a lot of these projects. Um, one of my favorite things about Web3 has been its fundraising ability, but it's also, like you said, it's detrimental where, you know, I'm, I'm a founder myself. And if you say, if I wake up tomorrow and I have $5 million in my bank, I generally don't have an idea what am I going to do with $5 million, right? And it's, it's the same with these projects, especially if you're young and you created an NFT project and it blows up out of nowhere. And suddenly you have, you know, millions of dollars in your bank. It is, it is, it is very difficult to be able to run the project effectively. So that's, that, that, that's, that's a really good point. Um, well, with that, it is, it has been an hour and a half. Um, Kelsey, thank you so, so, so much. This has been an incredible conversation. I have learned a lot, just like Armi, I've got a lot of things to research afterwards um, and this is the purpose of this talk. It was really to to get down to to the realistic conversation of of Warp three, and um, not just talk about the amazing potential, but also what could go wrong. And I, I think wanna... it's yeah. Go ahead, Remy. Uh The other thing that I wanted to poke in here because I thank you, Remy, for tossing that question because that's actually uh, I'm going to use it as a little bit of a transition because the next topic that we actually really want to talk about. Uh, if anybody is in the room that has expertise in this or is working on projects like this, um, we really, really want to talk about removing just the financial incentives or removing this, uh, uh, like, the the great part of Web3 from just the financial incentive. Um, and to see if that's actually possible or if it's not, 
or what that might look like when building a Web3 project where the incentive isn't just monetary value. I'm going to tell you this. Whoever figures out how to do that will spark fear in all the other people because that what you're talking about is decentralizing power. As long as your coins are for sale, as long as what you're working on is for sale, someone with power will come and buy it. And then they will decide what happens next over the long term. When you figure out a world where you can get these same passionate people to come together to solve very real problems and not talk about coins and blockchains and just talk about getting things done. And look, again, study the present. There are a number of open source projects that have done this. Think about all the programming languages you've used. When's the last time you paid for a programming language? Think about how powerful these programming languages are. They're so powerful, you can actually build a blockchain with them and enable a whole new ecosystem to be born. The power comes from that. The power isn't just using blockchain and Web3 technologies. The power is deciding as a collective that you want to pull your skills together and build something. And honestly, if you can figure out a way to do it without falling into the trap of ego and profit, you will definitely change the world. Look at Git and Linux. These things change the world and how we get things done, all because, I don't know about the ego part, but Linus Tolbert decided not to necessarily profit from the thing all by himself. So if you all are listening to this, Web3 is cool. You're not going to catch me hating on Web3 as if it should never be used. But what's more important is decentralizing power. And in 2022, if you actually look around, there is no reason to trade your power for some crypto tokens. Love that. Yeah. So that's the next conversation we're looking to have. So if anybody um, feels that they have something to add to that conversation or knows somebody that they feel would be great for that conversation, our DMs are open. Hit them. Uh, Kelsey, do you have any last thoughts before we get out of here? Hey, look, so my last thoughts on this Web3 thing is... I hope we get there as soon as we can and we stop grouping ourselves between version numbers of what we think the web is. We got real far in this game when we stopped talking about web two versus web one. Look what happened. We got all these amazing services that have brought us together. We're on one of those platforms today. One day we'll get rid of the, the numbering system and we'll just say we're all developers using technologies that we've co-created together. Once we get back to that, then we can stop all the tribal nonsense. We can stop the back and forth and we can just ask real questions. What can we do with these newfound capabilities, skills, and power? That's the end game. It's not about Web3 beating Web2. That is not interesting at all. I promise you, it is not interesting. What is interesting is what you're going to actually build by using a combination of the things in the tool belt. And if you're smart and you pay attention, you ain't gonna care about tribes. You're going to meet anyone that can help you on that mission. Please do that. Web3 is cool, but not more important than you are. Thank you, Kelsey. Amazing, Man. amazing end to the space. Again, thank you so much. It, it was a pleasure speaking with you. I have been in so many of your spaces and to, to have this conversation, um, it, was, it was great. Thank you so much for, for making the time. Yeah, Kelsey. Good night. I could. I don't think anybody could have said it better than you just said it. So, 
really honored to have you as a, our first conversation for this series and uh, looking forward to many more. All right, y'all have a great rest of your evening and uh, we'll see you next time. Until and then, follow the hashtag for more conversations. <laughs> follow the hashtag. Of course, we, we host plenty of Twitter spaces. Kelsey pops over in Twitter spaces, so definitely follow him, especially if you enjoyed some of the conversation that he was just wonderful knowledge he was sharing with us today. I host spaces morning tea every 8 a.m. Eastern time, and we're always hanging around on the timeline. So feel free to tweet and hit our DMs. Peace, y'all. Have a wonderful evening. Good night.